It's Thursday, October 15th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The federal prosecutor appointed by Attorney General Bill Barr to review unmasking requests by Obama administration officials has completed his work and found no substantive wrongdoing. U.S. Attorney John Bash provided no criminal charges, no public report, and also left the department just last week. Matt Zapatoski, reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for what we know about the unmasking probe. Next, the gig economy is on the ballot this year, at least in California, and it's shaping up to be the most expensive ballot proposition ever. Prop 22 will decide whether gig economy companies can classify workers as employees or independent contractors. The spending on this is huge, with gig economy companies shelling out $184 million to help pass it and just $10 million for the opposition. Kia Kokolacheva, tech and business reporter at Axios, joins us for more. Finally, there was a time early in the pandemic where employers thought they would be relying on rapid response tests to get employees back to work safely. But as we have seen with recent events, testing alone won't stop the spread of COVID-19. These tests were not designed to be used this way and is only one part of a full response plan. Ariane Marshall, staff writer at Wired, joins us for how and when tests should be used for returning to work. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. And he said he knew nothing about anything. He has no idea. He knows nothing about anything. Nothing at all. And then it gets released today that he was a big unmasker. So how do you know nothing if you're one of the unmaskers? Joining us now is Matt Zapatoski, reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thanks for having me. The federal prosecutor that Attorney General Bill Barr had tapped to investigate whether Obama administration officials had improperly requested the unmasking of individuals during the 2016 election has concluded his probe, and he didn't find any substantive wrongdoing in his probe through all this. This is U.S. Attorney John Bash. Matt, tell us a little bit about what this report says and, and a primer on unmasking, because my understanding from reading through all this is it's a pretty common thing to do. So unmasking is when a government official gets some kind of sensitive intelligence document and there are references to U.S. people. Oftentimes, those references are masked or redacted. So instead of seeing a name like Matt Zapatoski, you might see U.S. Person 1 or Reporter 1. And they do that to protect people's privacy, even inside the government, right? But if I'm a government official reading that, I might want to know who that is so I understand this intelligence product better. So I would make a request to unmask that name. So instead of saying Reporter One, it would say Washington Post reporter Matt Zapatoski. It's a very common practice. The name unmasking kind of has this seedy undertone, like you're you <laughs> right. know, revealing someone, exposing someone out in the world, but it's really not that. It's just revealing something internally in the government so you understand it better. So John Bash, this U.S. attorney, is tasked with investigating this practice because it was used a lot during the Obama administration. Again, nothing untoward about that necessarily, but Republicans were concerned because some requests were made to unmask names and they turned out to unmask names of people associated with President Trump, particularly former Trump National Security Advisor Michael Flynn. This generates some outrage among conservatives. John Bash explores this. He ultimately finds, as you said, no substantive wrongdoing. I have to say I haven't read his full findings or report, so people should know that, but people who are familiar with his work have described it and says it 
just doesn't live up to these conservative expectations of some grand conspiracy to, you know, and that it wouldn't even be a conspiracy on unmask because there's nothing wrong with that, but to unmask names and do something improper beyond that. And that's one of the interesting parts of it is that there was no public report made about this. He released the report, gave it to Bill Barr. That's pretty much the end of it. And then U.S. Attorney John Bash left the department last week. So really doesn't seem like we're going to hear any more about this. At least for now, the department has made the decision to just not say anything, not release a public report, not even release an official statement saying this investigation is over and we found no wrongdoing. And as you mentioned, John Bash left the department. His last day was on Friday. He had told the attorney general about a month ago, right around the time this wrapped up, that he was going to leave. So it doesn't seem like, at least in the short term, we're going to hear about anything more about what he found, at least through official channels. But certainly at the Washington Post, we're going to continue to report and see what more we can learn about what he found beyond that sort of top line conclusion. President Trump has been talking about this for quite some time, saying, you know, there's a lot of wrongdoing in the Obama administration because of this. This report doesn't really fit into that part of the narrative. Why else would we not be seeing some type of public report on this? Critics, I think, would say, look, this doesn't support what President Trump would want, which is that there's some grand conspiracy to wrong him. So the Justice Department is sitting on that. They don't want evidence out there that doesn't support the kind of attacks Trump is making on his political opponents. But there could be more innocuous reasons, too, right? The Justice Department generally doesn't like to take public steps in cases that could have consequences on the election close to the election. Some people think of this as a 60-day rule or a 90-day rule, meaning you're within that time frame of the election. There's no formal rule like that, but tradition just calls not to do that. The Justice Department also generally doesn't comment on investigations either when they're started or when they're ended if there are no charges. Now, this case is a little unusual because the department spokeswoman announced this investigation or this review publicly on Sean Hannity's show. So there's some expectation if you say it's open, you've got to say it closed. And the department hasn't provided us a reason as to why they're not saying anything about the end of it or revealing results. And we do know some of the names of the people they were looking into, people that were making the unmasking request. One of them was former Vice President Joe Biden. This whole thing got started kind of back in May when three Republican senators made public this list of officials who had made unmasking requests. The acting director of intelligence at the time, Rick Grinnell, had declassified that list. And it was a who's who, you know, of top Obama administration officials. The biggest name was obviously former Vice President Biden. There was former White House Chief of Staff Dennis McDonough, Jim Comey, the former FBI director, John Brennan, the former CIA director, James Clapper, the former director of national intelligence. So a lot of at least household names, at least here in Washington, that served in the Obama administration and Republicans in particular highlighted Vice President Biden's name. I think their critics would say for political reasons, they just want to connect him with unmasking, which is the CD word and suggest wrongdoing. When again, there's nothing, there's nothing inherently wrong. It's sort of so routine for government officials to say, who is that? And that practice has continued into the Trump administration. What has been the reaction and what has been the reaction to your reporting as well? My understanding is President Trump is not happy about this. 
President Trump is not happy generally that the department is not targeting his political foes. He's been particularly upset at another probe by this guy named John Durham, who's kind of investigating the Russia investigation that so dogged President Trump's campaign. And, you know, this is just another thing that is going to irk him. I have to say some of the reaction to the reporting is people saying, look, this doesn't surprise me at all. I knew all along national security you know, legal analysts saying, well, of course, I knew all along there was nothing wrong with unmasking. And they're really pointing to this bash investigation and saying, look, we always thought this was a political exercise. It would give President Trump something to point to and say, ha, my opponents are under investigation when really it was always destined to kind of lead to this conclusion that that there wasn't any substantive wrongdoing. Matt Zepatoski, reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Uh, one aspect, what would the drivers want? These Most of these drivers use both apps, both Lyft and Uber. And if they are employees, they will be likely restricted from jumping from app to app. Joining us now is Kia Kokolicheva, tech and business reporter at Axios. Thanks for joining us, Kia. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about a pretty important ballot measure in California. It's Prop 22, and it's really the gig economy being put on the ballot. It's ramping up to be the most expensive ballot question ever in California. I think it already is in terms of all the money that's being thrown around on it. Briefly, Prop 22 would impact the gig economy, uh, ride hailing, all that. It basically classifies workers as independent contractors rather than employees. And, uh, you know, a lot of the companies, DoorDash, Uber, Lyft, they have a big stake in all of this. So, Kia, explain a little bit more about what Prop 22 would do, and then let's get into some of the money that's being raised on this. So, in short, there is a California law that went into effect at the beginning of the year that codified much stricter requirements for companies to be able to classify workers as contractors instead of employees. And... Already, Uber and Lyft have been sued by the state attorney general over it to force them to comply. Other companies are facing more local legal challenges over it. And basically, all these companies, as much as they've been saying that it doesn't apply to them because they're not in the business of transportation or what have you, you can tell they're deeply uncomfortable with this law. And so Prop 22 would basically codify a sort of exemption and allow them to continue to classify their drivers for rides and delivery and things like that as contractors. But they're also trying to look like they're coming to the table with something. And so it would force them to also contribute some amount of money to provide some level of benefits that these drivers could tap into. What do we know about what the polls say so far about its possibility of passing? Well, there's not been as much polling on this particular proposition as a lot of things that are up for voting in November, but UC Berkeley came out with a poll last month. It gave the yes camp just a slight edge over the no camp, but there's still like 25% undecided. And that's kind of what a lot of other smaller independent polls have also found. So despite all the money that the companies are throwing at this, it doesn't look like it's something that's for them and that they're sure to win. A lot of undecided voters, a lot of folks just vote no on principle. A lot of folks just don't vote at all on these propositions. So it's still very much up in the air. 
And unlike the presidential election where people often tend to make their minds up a lot earlier, these ballot propositions, a lot of people are uninformed or, you know, make the decision on the fly or like you said, don't even vote at all on it. So, yeah, we're going to have to wait until this thing passes. And it's important to note that, you know, California is such a huge state that other states and other places really take notes off of what happens there. So the worry is that, you know, if this passes, then uh, other states can uh, kind of do similar laws and things like that. Okay, let's get into the meat of it, though, the money angle. How much is being spent on this proposition? So the Yes Champ, so that's all the companies, they have so far contributed about 184, give or take, million on the campaign, which is a lot. <laughs> the No Camp is only up to about 10 or 11 million right wow. now, which is mostly <laughs> labor unions and labor advocates and that sort of thing. So you can tell just how existential this battle is for these companies. I want to do a quick breakdown only because <laughs> so you can see how much each company is spending. Uber is spending 50 million, Lyft 48 million, DoorDash 47 million, Instacart 28 and Postmates 11 million. So as you mentioned, lots at stake for these companies. And then they're also facing some criticism for how these gig companies you know, the campaign tactics that they're using because they're putting notifications on the apps for the drivers and for the customers. They're trying to get onto these slate mailers as well. And a lot of people are saying, hey, you know, with all this money, you're just trying to get the word out there, obviously, but it's kind of unfair. As we discussed earlier, you know, a lot of folks don't really know about the propositions that are on their ballots. So there really is a gap in education that just inherently exists when it comes to propositions like that. And these companies are not afraid to use their own influence over their customers and their users. They've done this before. They did it in New York when de Blasio wanted to put some restrictions. They are really not afraid to turn their own customers into their advocates and their political allies. And they have apps that are being used by millions of people, so they're going to use them if it's legal. Kia Kokolicheva, tech and business reporter at Axios. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. These new Abbott rapid point of care tests are easy to use and return results within just minutes. You'll have a, a result at a maximum 15 minutes. Machine, no machine is required to process that. Joining us now is Ariane Marshall, staff writer at Wired. Thanks for joining us, Ariane. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about testing for employers and at the workplace. For some time early in the pandemic, a lot of people were writing it up as testing is going to be the main thing to get people back to work. You know, you get your test, make sure you're testing negative, you don't have coronavirus, get to work and you're good. And we're all kind of waiting for these rapid tests to come on board and start being a little cheaper so more people can use them. Well, a lot of employers that are relying on these rapid tests now are kind of rethinking it. And the obviously the White House is an example of why that might not work. The White House was relying on a lot of rapid tests to get to business as usual and people being around the president. And now we're seeing a bunch of cases there. So, Ariane, tell us a little bit about these rapid tests. Tell us about the nuances of how these tests should be used and how they should be used for, for workers to get back to it. 
in the beginning of the pandemic, it felt like, well, if we could only get enough tests for everyone, then everything would be solved. We could go back to work. We could go back to school. Life could continue as normal. But it's become apparent as the pandemic has gone on that a lot of tests, and particularly these rapid tests that are cheaper and that are quicker, aren't totally, totally accurate. You sometimes get false positives and you also sometimes get false negatives. And the reason that's so bad and so scary is because it means that you could test negative and, you know, a workplace could say, oh, okay, you don't have the coronavirus. Come on in, take off your mask. Let's pretend this pandemic isn't happening outside and we'll continue our lives. When in fact, you could be asymptomatic and could be able to give the coronavirus to your coworkers. And that's such a scary proposition for people that now going forward, a lot of the really smart workplaces are saying, okay, yeah, we may offer tests, but it's also really important that even if you test negative on those tests, you still wear a mask and you still do social distancing. So we try to do everything possible to cut down the risk for workers and for people just trying to live their lives. And these rapid tests in particular aren't really designed to catch asymptomatic cases of the virus. Those are a little more trickier. That's why you want these PCR tests, the ones that go down to a lab and are analyzed completely for any traces of the virus. So that's the other part of it is that these tests aren't designed for that. It's a tool in a suite of things to be used. That's actually one of the sort of more frightening things about the way the White House in particular was using this test. They were using it reportedly, according to the New York Times and others, they were saying, hey, if you come and take this test and you have a negative result, you can interact with people like the president at close range without a mask. But actually, the Trump administration's own emergency use authorization for some of these more recent rapid tests, which came out as recently as August, said that they were for use particularly for people with symptoms. So if you are asymptomatic and you get a negative on this test, it doesn't mean you don't have coronavirus. So it's really tricky. Testing does make people feel better. It's an important thing. I'm not trying to diminish taking these tests, even the rapid tests. It's got to be used in conjunction with a lot of things, but it does make people feel better knowing that somebody has tested negative. At least you're not uncomfortable, let's say, working around others. And it's a hard thing for employers as a result because they have employees say, hey, it would really make me feel a lot better if everyone got tests to come back to the workplace. So employers are saying, okay, we'll pony up for these if they make you feel better. But everyone should understand, again, that just because you've taken a test and it says you're negative, that just means that in that very exact moment, you don't have coronavirus. But it could be that you step into an elevator, you go into a grocery store, do something else, interact with other people, and then get it, you know, the very next hour. So it's hard. You did speak to a couple of uh, businesses and a couple of people who offer guidance to businesses also on opening up their workplaces. What do they say about these rapid tests and really how employers should be getting back to work? A lot of them are just like everyone else, working through the realities of living with this new virus that we've never seen before. And there are still so many open questions about how this virus works that, you know, they're also having trouble. So they are getting new guidance from the CDC all the time about the best ways to open up their workplace in a safe way. 
So the way these law firms and testing companies are advising employers is they're saying, hey, these are some important caveats when using these tests, but these are also why they might be valuable for you. But again, keep in mind that just having the test isn't going to make you safe. If you can in your workplace, please take all the possible precautions that are also offered by the CDC and other government authorities. Ariane Marshall, staff writer at Wired, thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.